May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Glad you're here today. <clears throat> I want to talk to you this morning about the second half of this reading to Colossians, verses 12 through 17. Our lives should reflect the love of Christ. It's a big idea. And just to remind you what you heard, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called by the one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This section completes uh, Paul's exhortation to live a holy life, and the first half of that reading today gives a list of things we need to put off, and these are things we need to put on. And the phrase put off means put to death. Those things that were read earlier have no place in the life of a Christian. And Paul is talking to people whose lives have been changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ, spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. And in these verses, 12 through 17, Paul gives us four motives to do this. He's going to talk about the grace of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. The grace of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. First, the grace of Christ uh, God's favor to undeserving sinners. Remember the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. So this idea of grace, God's unmerited favor to us, comes pos becomes possible only because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Without that, the price is not paid, and we are separate from God forever. But that act of sacrifice on the cross on our behalf allows us the opportunity to come back into relationship with the Father. Grace. He says we're holy. Holy means we're set apart for the purposes of God. We're not living out in the desert someplace. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're supposed to be God's ambassadors, you know, God's emissaries. Somebody said every, every Christian should have a, one of those big magnetic stickers, signs on your driver's side door, on the king's business. Wherever you are, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whether I'm at work, I'm at family, I'm with whatever it is I'm doing, I'm cheering on my team, I'm representing Jesus. I'm on the king's business. Am I conducting myself in such a way that that would be appropriate? Or am I acting in ways 
that are representative of those first few verses that we read in the Colossians reading today rather than the second few. He says, put on compassion, some two Latin words, compassio, which means to suffer with. Um, in the old world, it really had to do with bowels. You have that phrase, I've got a gut feeling. Yeah. A little girl was asked, what are the three parts of man? She said, man has three parts, the brainium, the chester, and the abominable cavity. The brainium houses the brain, the chester houses the heart, and the abominable cavity houses the bowels, of which there are five, A, E, I, O, and U. I'm not sure what kind of a grade she got on that, but that's what she thought. <laughs> anyway. It's interesting that compassion really wasn't a value in that day and age. That, that, that just wasn't part of who they were. Christianity brought this kind of, of value or mercy to the world. And you think of all the Christian ministries that helped the needy today. When there's a disaster, who's the first on the scene? Samaritan's Purse or somebody like that who's rushing in with food and, and supplies and their Red Cross is setting this up and, and all and Salvation Army is there. These are Christian organizations that rush. They get there, I'll tell you what, they're there before FEMA gets there. These Christian organizations get there. They have compassion to suffer with the people who have been affected. I got a, I got a text from John Childers uh, yesterday. And he's uh, got relatives up in eastern Kentucky where all that rain was, and they've just been devastated by those rains. And he's sending up a tractor-trailer load of food. He asked if we could be of assistance with that. If you want to help with that, let me know. We're not taking up a collection for that. We got to, I always feel like I'm taking up a collection. Like last week it was Arnett House. Today it's World Mission Sunday, fifth Sunday of the month, and next Monday it's Kill the Mortgage. Welcome to Christ the King. Thank you so much. But my point is Christians help. They have compassion for those in need. Kindness. He says kindness. It really means your neighbor's welfare is as important as your own. You're looking out for people. I look at it like you're just being nice to somebody. You're just being nice. Please, thank you, or let me get the door for you. I think we're losing that in our society today. There's a certain... Um, indifference to other people. You see that when you see two people standing in a doorway having a conversation where people are trying to get by and they get annoyed if you, ex if you say, excuse me. I mean, really, just little things like that. Or people are rude to a cashier or, or something like that. Kindness, just being nice. Am I displaying that in my everyday life? Lowliness means humility. RSV translated as lowliness, but the word is humility. This is another concept that was created by Christianity. There's no word for humility in classical Greek. Did not understand that concept. They were more into power and domination. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean oh, I'm no good. Oh, I'm worthless. It means it's not that I think less of myself, it's that I think more of other people. It's not that I'm putting myself down, but I care about and concern 
for the welfare of other people as well. And there's no room for arrogance. I'm better than people. I'm better than so-and-so. Um, we're all made in the image of God. I was thinking this, and I thought of accusations of racism in the military recently. The, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs said, what's the biggest problem facing the military? He said, white rage. And I went, what? I was in the Navy for over 20 years. And I served with blacks and Asians and Hispanics and all kinds of people, and I never thought about it. I never thought about color. And now if I say that, I don't see color. I'm a racist by definition. But I didn't. I just cared if you were on the job, if you, did, if you knew what you were doing. If you, right? You were in the Marine Corps. Same thing. So I said, maybe, maybe that was old news. Maybe it's different today. So I called Donald, and I asked him. He's my, our son is in the Navy. He's been there 20 years now. He said, Dad, I don't know what they're talking about. It's not like that. I've been all over. I've been a commanding officer of a ship. I, just, I see all kinds of different people. It's not a problem here. And it's, that made me feel better. Made me feel better because it never was a problem, and I don't think in the military it is a problem. I'm not saying this kind of attitude doesn't exist where people do see themselves, oh, I'm a white white male, I'm better than you. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it doesn't exist in the heart of a Christian. It better not exist in the heart of a Christian because that is not being on the king's business. It is not representing well. Meekness, gentleness, self-control. It's power under control. You get angry at the right time and you're never angry at the wrong time. I could, but I won't, you know. Um, now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus, when he's overturning the tables in the temple, the money changers, that's righteous anger. And there are times, I think, when we should get, <laughs> I think of the border. And I think of, of human trafficking that's going on. And I think of the fentanyl that's coming into the country and 100,000 people a year dying of fentanyl. Well, that happened someplace else, not here. So I'm, I'm talking to this guy about two weeks ago. We're having an interaction over something that I'm doing. And he mentions, he says, well, yeah, my, when my wife passed away. It looks like to be about 35 years old. I said, really? What happened? He said, well, she had a really bad abscess tooth. I'm sure she wasn't your patient, Jim. And... Uh, she was going to get it worked on, but the pain was just incredible, and she was taking painkillers. Then they had to move the, pro the, the, uh, the procedure off three weeks out, and she ran out of the pain pills, and she couldn't get a, I don't know, whatever happened, she couldn't get a prescription, and she went online and found the, the same kind of pill and got them and took it and died because it was fentanyl here in Ocala. He's got boys 10, 8, and 4. And now they have no mother because of that. That makes me angry. I don't know about you. That makes me angry. And I think people in power ought to be a little bit more angry about that and do something about it. That's a sign of meekness, power under control. But you get angry at the right time, but never at the wrong time. Patience and forbearance. Now, this is something that I know would never occur 
at Christ the King. So this is strictly hypothetical because I know that none of you know any irritating people. Not possible. Right? We're all Christians. We're all on the king's business. Nobody could be irritating. But just hypothetically, it's to hold up, to hold back. It's not having a short fuse. When I was about five years old, my father decided I needed a horse of my own to care for, so he bought an old bay mare and brought her home to me. I named her Dixie. Dixie was a formidable beast for me at my age and small stature. No saddle was small enough, no stirrup short enough for my legs, so I rode bareback most of the time. Where's Bernardo? There he is, the horse guy. Dixie was plump, which meant that my feet stuck straight out, making it difficult to stay astride. But whenever I fell off, Dixie would simply stop, look at me, and wait while I tried to climb back up on her again. This leads me to Dixie's most admirable trait. She was wonderfully patient. I, on the other hand, was less than patient with Dixie. Yet she bore my childish tantrums with stoic patience, never once retaliating. I wish I could be more like Dixie, having patience that overlooks a multitude of offenses. I have to ask myself, how do I react when others aggravate me? Do I respond with humility, meekness, and patience? Colossians 3.12. Hmm, what we're talking about. Or with intolerance and indignation. To overlook an offense, to forgive 70 times 7, to bear with human frailty and failure, to show mercy and kindness to those who exasperate us, to gain such control over our souls. This is the work of God. How do I deal with people who are irritating? Do I love them? Do I pray for them? Do I work with them? Um, do I shut them out? Do I judge them? Do I criticize them? How do I do that? And Paul is saying here, and I think God is saying here, we treat, we treat them with patience. Um, we treat them the way we would like to be treated when we're in a bad mood or something's not going right and we're acting out a little bit. Again, not that ever, that ever happens. Forgiveness. The logical result of all this is really forgiveness. No grudges. Um, very often people will do things to us that hurt things that are unexpected. How do I react to that? I can say I forgive you. I can say it, but do I mean it? Does it come from my heart? Has there been a transformation in me that says this is real? And one of the ways you can know if it's real is when you see that person coming, you don't get that <coughs> in your stomach because it's not an issue anymore. It's not a problem. You've dealt with it. <coughs> it's over. It's done. Sometimes it takes God to do it. Corey Ten Boom, uh, a wonderful evangelist back in the 50s and 60s in Europe, she and her sister Bessie were in a, con a Nazi concentration camp. There was a very sadistic guard who tormented her sister, and finally her sister died. The war is over. Corey's released from the camp. Off she goes. And in the 1950s, she's in Germany doing an evangelistic campaign. She's in a church. And people are coming up to her after one at a time to get prayed for. And who's standing in front of her but the guard? Oh, Fraulein Ten Boom, isn't it wonderful we serve a God who could forgive even my sin to her? And she says, and she tells the story, 
I froze. I couldn't move. It was like my blood stopped pumping. And I said, I can't forgive him. And then she said, Lord, I can't do it. Help me forgive him. Nothing happened. She said, Lord, I can't do it at all. If you want me to forgive him, you're going to have to do it through me. And she reached out her hand, and he took her hand, and she said, I felt warmth from my head to my feet because God allowed me to forgive him for what he, even for what he did to my sister. And it was real. It was real. Sometimes it's really hard. It takes some time. But God says through Paul, he says, um, as far as it lies with you, be at peace with all people. You have to be willing to be willing to be in relationship with people. Now, if they don't want to have anything to do with you, you don't beat the door down. You just pray for them. But we need to be willing to be back in relationship with people, even if they've hurt us. Put on love. Love like a garment holds it all together. It's the first fruit of the fruit of the spirit. And when love rules in our lives, we live in harmony and spiritual maturity. This is the kind of agape love that God has for us. It's unconditional. It doesn't say, it says, I'm going to love you even if you don't love me back. It's not conditioned on somebody's performance. It's just the way God wants us to be. He wants us to love one another the way he loves us. Next thing is the peace of Christ, moving from character now to conduct. Those are all sort of character traits we've been talking about. This is conduct. And he says he wants us to rule in our hearts. The word rule here means umpire. Call the balls and strikes. The umpire would settle disputes and make the call. And if we seek the peace of Christ, we will have fewer disputes with ourselves in, in our church. When we obey what Christ is telling us, we will have peace rule in our hearts. We'll have harmony. We'll have contentment. Now, last night, um, okay, we're having an Anglican Fourth Day retreat coming up starting Thursday through Sunday of this coming, of this week, right? So when you are on a team, uh, you meet at the, at the rectora's house, which is uh, Deb Johnson. Where's Deb? Somewhere. There she is. So a whole bunch of us were down there, and a lot of us had never worked on the same team before. Um, working a team can be very stressful because things have to happen the right time in the right way with the right people, and the enemy hates it. They, he hates the fact that we've got an A4D coming up. He hates the fact that this church is growing. He hates anything that has to do with the kingdom of God that's moving in any kind of positive direction, and the A4D movement is moving in a positive direction. So I simply said, we need to be able to work together. We need to be able to love one another through this, even when it gets stressful. And if you've got an issue with somebody, go to them in love and work it out. Don't hang on to it throughout the weekend, Tommy. Got it? I'm just saying... It makes things go so much better if you can communicate and really care about one another and not be judgmental and not be critical and not hold on to stuff throughout that four-day period. And that's what this really is all about. The Word of God. 
people in Colossae were dealing with man-made traditions and human philosophies. They didn't really have a concept of God. And in our nation, fewer people believe in God. On the plus side of that, sort of under the underground here, you have a lot of <clears throat> younger people coming to faith in a very powerful and real way through various evangelists, mechanisms, crusades, all kinds of things happening around the country. It's very exciting. It's very exciting, i got to say. But in a general sense, fewer people believe in God. But you always have a God. There's always a God in your life. For some people, the God is government. You know, they'll tell me what to do and what to go and where, where to go and how to do it, and that's, that's who I serve. Or maybe it's money. Money's the answer to all my problems. As long as I have enough money, I'm fine. Go ahead and Google people who win the lottery, what happens to them. It's not good, generally speaking. Maybe it's family. Maybe family becomes your God until things start to fall apart and people don't act in ways that you thought were appropriate or whatever it might be. That will disappoint you. Maybe it's climate. That's a big thing these days. Climate. Is that, is that your God? I listened to a guy who was being interviewed in Ireland. He's a climate guy. And he said that we have to get rid of all the animals, all the cows, the sheep, the goats, the pigs, and the chickens because they create nitrogen and ammonia. So we have to get rid of all the animals in the world to prevent that. And then we have to get rid of agriculture. No more growing stuff because that uses fertilizer that damages the, the world. And in England, they're sort of hanging, going on with this, and you need some sort of protein thing. So they're trying to introduce, in schools in England, the kids are eating bugs. Bugs. I guess that's climate safe or something. I don't know. But when that's your God, you got a problem. Um, and something, sometimes things can go strange or, wa or wonky. Um, LGBT program. Uh, 22 attorneys general are now suing the federal government because the Department of Agriculture has said that if you have any laws that undermine the LGBT movement, you will no longer get reduced uh, lunches for your school kids from us. So I saw the attorney general from Alabama, and he said, we have laws in Alabama that said boys are boys and girls are girls, and boys get to use the boys' room, and girls get to use the girls' room, and boys play on the boys' teams, and girls play on the girls' teams. And we've been informed we no longer qualify for reduced and free lunch because of that. There's some righteous anger involved in that, because who do you really care more about, a, personal pro a proper personal pronoun or some kid that's not feeding, getting fed? You know, but if that's your highest value, which is what we're talking about, then where does that leave you? The answer is the Word of God. The answer is the Word of God. The Word of God has all the answers we need to, to live our lives in a productive, fruitful, godly way. I heard about the, I, I listened to the guy that said, get rid of all the animals, and I thought about, what does God say about that? What does he say is, what does he tell us is a sign of prosperity? Herds, flocks, crops, olives, figs, you know. You've got to grow that stuff. 
I think God's behind that. God's a farmer. God's a herdsman. I don't think he said anything about horses, Bernardo, because I don't, I don't know. It's the word of God that transforms us. If we allow it to dwell in us richly, love the word dwell. The dwell means to feel at home. In John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It means pitched his tent among us. He pitched his tent because he was in a place where he wanted to be and felt at home. Does the word of God feel at home in my heart? Am I familiar with the word of God? Can I put the word of God into practice in my day-to-day living, in my day-to-day life? Does it come to me? Is it second nature? Do I read it? Do I pray on it? Do I think about it? Or is it something I hear read on Sunday morning? Good question. As it dwells in each one's heart, it creates fellowship in the church. says the church is a singing church. It's true then, it's true now. The problem is that for some churches, that's all there is. It's a great show, but there's no real substance. There's no word of God. There's no biblical worldview in the church. Mario Murillo, who's one of the guys who's doing these amazing crusades around the country, he has a phrase, he's, he says, for churches like that, he says, uh, big screens, skinny jeans, and fog machines. And he says, that's about all you're getting when you go there. Um, You need a complete worship service. You need both. You need the word and you need music. That's the complete worship experience. They came together uh, in Acts, it says, for for the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, the fellowship and the prayers. And part of that prayer and fellowship is music. And I think we're blessed at Christ the King with our group and our team that uh, does such a wonderful job for us on Sunday and throughout the week. But when we're filled with the word of God, we're joyful, peaceful, and grateful. And finally, the name of Christ. Names were important then, probably more important then than they are now. They meant a lot. Um, I don't know if you know what your name means. Ask Siri sometime what your name means. It's interesting. So, But as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. And bearing the name of Christ gives us authority. Your name carries with it authority. You can sign a check. You can sign a credit card receipt. You can do a lot of things with your name. But bearing the name of Christ gives us authority to pray, to declare, to admonish, to bless, to do a whole lot of different things in the name of Christ. Now, praying in the name of Christ can be problematic. I've been places where they've asked me to pray, and I'll say, in, the, in, in Jesus' name, amen. And then later they might say, Not everybody really resonates with that, Father Don. I said, well, then in the future, don't ask me to pray. I'm a Christian. I will pray in the name of Jesus. I'm not praying in anybody else's name. It's not a generic God that I'm praying to. It's Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And saying that out loud in the old days could have gotten you head cut off. Today, it might get you excluded from certain 
parts of society. It just depends where you are. Bearing the name of Christ is a privilege and a responsibility. Some are going to suffer persecution because of his name. True then and it's true now. But in the end, whatever we do, our lives should reflect the love of Christ. There's a lot at stake when NASA launches a space shuttle. That's why the experts make sure everything relating to the liftoff is in order. The rockets, the crew, the weather, the tracking stations. Although no blastoff can ever be guaranteed safe. A clean pre-launch checklist is NASA's best hope of avoiding a tragedy in space. We as Christians need that same kind of carefulness. And just as NASA won't let the, at, the, out, the shuttle go without first checking out all systems, so also we should never enter a new day without making a careful check of our lives. A good place to start is Paul's list of Christian character traits in today's scripture reading. Ask yourself, have I put on compassion and kindness? Have I put on humility, gentleness, and patience? Can I forgive grievances against others? Have I put on love? Does the peace of God rule in my heart? Am I thankful? Does the word of Christ dwell in me? Am I singing God's praises? Will I do everything in Jesus' name? Are all systems go? Or are there some repairs necessary before you take off today? Please stand. 